and one, two, three, four, five. Welcome back to the TMCJ podcast. We are on episode 82. 82, which has nothing that I can even say mathematically clever about it. Last week, at least, it was nine times nine, but nothing True. this week. Good uh, nice square number. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah. Blue, you want to lead us off topics this week? So, we in Ingerland at the moment, available and being broadcast on TV, is Peaky Blinders Season 60 finale of Peaky Blinders, which, as many of you will know, that we are great fans of the series. Indeed. Uh, and as such, we have watched the first episode of it. But, interestingly... I have not been watching it through Kaiser's Netflix account this time. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Kaiser has been watching it through my accounts. <laughs> yeah, so this is something... I, I don't know why exactly this it worked out this way, but Peaky Blinders, like when we first started watching the show, in the US, you could watch it on Netflix up to the current season. But in the UK, you could only do it if you were watching it on the BBC, on TV. You, the yeah. the Netflix accounts for British people had that fir- that latest season restricted for them. It's not that not the case now. I can't watch it. Blue can. Yeah, and uh, so let's talk about the first part um, before the several months jump cut. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's after the theater where the Nazi dude, who isn't mentioned really in the entire episode. Mm. After this point is um, being set up by Thomas Shelby, but then it's double cross and Thomas Shelby's sniper and one of his chief confidants gets assassinated instead. Um, yep. And we find out that a communist lady. I, I think, think it was communist. No, no, it was an Irish. I think she mentions okay. the Irish Republican Army like needs him to right. live for some reason. So an IRA commander, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, gives. Thomas Shelby a warning that he's too big for his boots and yeah. then three bodies are delivered and this is a very controversial part which Kaiser I'll let you go yeah so they he opens it it, it does like a cut back and forth so it opens up because at the end of the last season Thomas Shelby had like run off into the fog and was just like clearly just a complete shambles like his plan had blown up people had died like there was a chance that his family could be targeted and so he ran off into the mist, and near the end of the last season, he's, like, screaming and running at the camera with a gun to his head. Um, but they leave it at that at the end of the last season. This season, he, you know, pulls the trigger and the gun's empty. Um, and, you know, his, his wife confronts him, and he comes back, and that's when he gets the call that Blue's talking about. Um, and it kind of jumps back and forth between him on the phone listening to this message and going out front and opening up the body bags to look at the people inside them. Um, and so first body, two body bags are predictable. They don't show the bodies, but it's the people that, you know, got assassinated or got killed during that, um, theater scene. And then the last one, the person is saying that, you know, you've been relying on a crutch all this time. You've had this one support structure that's allowed you to get this far. And I'm going to, and I've just kicked that crutch out from beneath you. And based on what happens after that, it's, implied more in and not shown that it's um Polly. Yeah. His his aunt Polly, who has been like basically the counterpart to him throughout the entire series. 
Um, like the two of them are constant, like the two of them are kind of supporting each other throughout the in- entire series up to this point, and which has got their family as far as it has. His ambition with her, like, you know, um, rationality, as it were. Uh, and the the reason it's controversial uh, is because the the real life actress for the person died, um, and I think that they handled it in a I, I personally think they handled it in a tasteful way. Like, granted, she died a violent death, but she plays a gangster in the show, so you know, it was going to be one. Um, but they didn't like you know show her like brutally murdered they just implied that that was the body he saw and they give her like a big funeral and a send-off in the show where she's in her trailer and they they light the pyre and and burn her inside it like they did with the other gypsy funerals um so personally i think they, they did it as tastefully as they could while not fucking with the show's continuity um like she dies off screen and then they give her a funeral but i don't know do you have anything to add to that uh, I don't know. It felt a bit giant because we knew what was, had happened, uh, and I, there is no good way of displaying no. that. Um, there's, mm. I mean, there's the other big instance of this I can think of is with uh, the Dark Knight movie. Um, in that one, Heath Ledger famously OD'd on drugs. Um, pain, I think it was either pain meds or sleeping meds or something like that in his hotel room after the movie completed and the Joker was supposed to kill himself at the end of that movie Uh, but they edited the scene to just have him laughing in the background as Batman ran away when he was supposed to have you know hung himself Uh, so that was another like big controversial one where they they, there really wasn't a good way to handle it they had to change the ending to the movie and it didn't really make sense but it was either that or show him actually kill himself on screen yeah. Rough. Yeah. You want to move but anyway, on? Yeah, after the rest that, of the plot. Uh, a French island off the coast of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically chosen for the fact that it's outside of the um, zone for bootleggers. Yeah, prohibition still going on in the US and Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, Shelby Limited has come along and I think set up factories there. Uh, I believe what's happening is they bought them. No, so they they it was a place that they had gone through before because they had like no 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 they they were doing bootlegging through the island right because it was outside of the jurisdiction of Canada and the U.S. and since prohibition had just ended because they make a point that it jumped four years into the future to 1933 where prohibition has just ended and now. Liquor's legal, so their island. One of the chief, like ways they made money on that island, was warehousing and bootlegging and shipping like real booze into the, you know, into the U.S. Um, into Boston in particular. And I think he's going there because they're looking to uh, import either cocaine or opium into the U.S. And since this island already has like an infrastructure set up to illegally run stuff into that that country it makes sense to use them because you've got people who already have experience you know uh smuggling in stuff yeah and and that's so he's gone there to uh meet with michael who was a bit of a douche in the last season 
and at the beginning of this one at Polly's funeral like swears he's gonna do everything he can to you know ruin Thomas Shelby and then it cuts four years into the future but yeah go on uh yeah kind of ironic that they oh amusingly ironic I should say that they're doing something illegal it becomes legalized so they immediately switch to doing something else illegal yeah <laughs> but I guess you know play to your strengths um Really good scene with uh, some French workers in the bar with Tommy. Mm. Found out that he's sworn off of alcohol now. Yeah. Uh, he's taking up poetry. Yep. He shoots a bird. <laughs> that there was is... so random, but it was fucking funny. <laughs> the scene was hilarious. Cause I think his exact, like, the guy tries to force him to drink a toast by because he orders water at the bar and it offends the, you know, the the whiskey runners who are in the bar and he throws his water on the floor pours pours whiskey in his glass and he's like you're gonna drink a toast to the good people of the island or something like that and thomas shelby like cuts him and then like pulls a gun and yeah shoots the bird shoots the phone and the whole time just calm as a cucumber is going like it's like i don't drink anymore because it brought out the most violent tendencies in me and I worry that if I do again, I might, and and like, he, he, that's when he shoots the phone. And he's like, I might revert to my old ways. Like, he's being extremely violent, but he's talking very calm to the people around so, him. So, yeah, he shoots the phone. And then, I, I, at first, I was like, was that a messenger pigeon or was it just a straight up pigeon? Because they were talking about pigeons infesting the loft. Mm. And just a fucking pigeon flies, bam, dead. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it was fucking, I love that scene. I absolutely loved that scene. Oh. But yeah, um, then he heads up to the meeting room, uh, and the the meeting with the FBI happens, which was pretty fucking fun. Uh, yeah, kind of badass as you even even just telling poetry, he was badass. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. Michael just kind of sat there gurning a bit and just I mean he's ever really since the last anything. season like they've he's just ever since he went to the US in that one season he's just turned into a cocky little shit hmm and why does why does he expect why does Tommy A just give him a bag of cocaine and why does B he just hang around with this bag of cocaine so there's two reasons for that. One, I think that uh, Michael was just wicked cocky. Like he thought that like he's got he's friends with all these Irish gangsters from Boston. They're not going to be searched because his uncle has these political con connections. And so he's going to be fine. Um, and he in his mind, this business deal is his opportunity to get revenge against Tommy. But as usual, Tommy's like three steps ahead of him. Yeah, and um, playing you know, four D chess while exactly. Michael's on two D. <laughs> exactly, he plants like he plants the seed in their minds that there's an informer in their organization, and then he informs on Michael going back with the you know the opium, and so he gets caught, and now they're thinking that there is an informer, and so they're searching for the informer that doesn't exist because Tommy was the one that did it. Well, and no, so, someone did hang for it. Yeah, exactly. They they killed a guy. Because of Tommy's bullshit. Like, he just... Yeah. He, he made that up. <laughs> oh. But, yeah, no. It was... It was harsh. It was just a great... Yeah, no. He's... You're right, though. He's he's playing 4D chess, and he's doing it ruthlessly. 
Hmm. And like, if he's trying to propose a business deal, he's just got one of you arrested, another one of you killed, uh, and he, yeah, like, why the fuck would anyone agree to do a business deal with him after that? I, I think, really, in his mind, he's probably, what I'm guessing is he's probably setting them up in a situation where they basically have no choice but to do a business deal with him. Like, he's making the alternative so yeah. shit that they have to He's gonna offer it to it. the Eastern Bloc. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Solomons, who I famously love. Yeah. Um, him and his dog. Has he still got his dog? They didn't hurt the dog, did they? I don't think they hurt the dog. Yeah. Uh, and so we're hopefully gonna be seeing him in the next episode. Yeah, Artie Solomon. It'd be great to have him back. Um, what happened after the meeting? After the meeting, um, let's see. That's when he goes and he does the, in, you know, informs on what happened, um, and then so I believe there's the, the the meeting scene in the prison with Michael and his wife. But before that, it cuts back to what's going on in England, and there's Christmas going on. The kids are oh, riding I didn't around. Give a fuck about any of that, honestly. The, <laughs> the only the only important part of that scene is that Arthur is now a shambles. He's like he's hooked on True. opium, and he's yeah, just... his wife died, didn't she? Yeah, she got shot. Oh she yeah, tried... she almost shot him. Yeah, 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 she almost shot him, and somebody else, you know, popped her. Polly, um, yeah, Polly, famously at the end of well, it wasn't quite at the end of the last season, but it was near the end of the last season. So yeah, mm. so Arthur is like you know during that Christmas scene, he's like drunk off his ass, probably high on opium. Um. And, yeah, just a complete fucking shambles. Th that's the only relevant thing that happens here. There's also some talk, you know, between um, their sister and um, Tommy's wife. Uh, and the kids are running around. That's that's really it. Yeah. And then, it, you're right, it cuts to that jailhouse scene. I hate her. His Michael's wife? Yeah. Honestly. She's so annoying. I blame her. For his transition from being one of my favorite characters to one of my least favorite characters in the series. Because in the first few seasons he shows up, he's awesome. Like, yeah. he's coming in, he's this young, ambitious kid, he wants he's to really be part of the family. in the first few. Yeah. And now he feels like he's the butt of every joke. He's an idiot. Yeah, but in this, in this and the last season, again, after he went to the US and married that chick, like, he's turned into just this moron like he's way too big for his own boots he's ambitious but he doesn't have like the ruthless cunning to make anything he's book smart but he's not like cunning like tommy and the other gangsters are anyway but yeah she uh, meets with him in the prison yeah um they say a bunch of things that aren't true because it's all fabricated by tommy mm. uh then tommy meets her he does, yeah. It, like, she's in her... By the way, I love the Art Deco style. Like, yeah, the style from the yeah the 20s and the 30s. It's just... It's such a cool, like, um, architectural and artistic style. I just love it. Anyway, so she's in her, like, Art Deco, like, ballroom, sitting room, whatever. And there's a bar, and she's listening to jazz and drinking. She's trying to get, like, Harley Quinn-style acting... Yeah, that she did give off a Harley Quinn vibe. 
Yeah, and um, then she gets fucking broken by Tommy. <laughs> yeah. She comes in and tries to be, like, just like Michael. She tries to be, like, hot shit Cocky, and, like, yeah. oh, my, my uncle's never going to do business with you. You know, fuck your deal. And then Tommy makes it very clear. It's like, no, skew, he's going to have to take this deal. Um, yeah. And then he outright tells her to her face that he was the one that informed on Michael. And... Yeah. He's like, and I did that to give your uncle an impossible choice. He either has to, you know, get your husband out of jail and dirty his hands with his political connections, or he gets to let his favorite niece's, um, you know, husband rot in jail. So we'll see what he chooses or something like that. And she, like, tries to be cocky again and, like, cranks up the, like, the jazz and the radio, and he, like, kicks the radio so it shuts off and then just, again tells her to her face it's like it's me or i go go to the other people and then he he walks out of the room and he's like have another drink um uh, yeah anything after that i honestly can't remember much after the fishing after the island scene <laughs> that was a really good scene it really um, was a good scene i think the last thing that happens is yeah. tommy goes to meet michael in the prison and at this point, Michael yeah. knows that he was the one that informed. And Tommy, like, basically just um, tells him, him he's that, on his own. Yeah, he's on his own. You'll get out eventually, but, you know, after the press dies down and your uncle can do this. In the meantime, you know, I'm going back to England. So's he. Oh, he's taking your wife, too. I'll show her the town. Yeah. Just this, again, just complete and utter ownage. That was yeah. something I, I like because from the begin in the beginning of the episode, Tommy's at the end of his rope. Like he's failed in so many different ways. And by the end of the episode, he's back in form again, and you can Very start to- four years later. <laughs> yeah, well, it, uh, it took him four years in sobriety, but he's yeah. back, baby. But anyway, so I'm looking forward to uh, Solomon and uh, fuck. What's your favorite character's name? Uh, well, Arthur is... Arthur, there you go. But I, I'm just... Meeting up. I, I'm hoping, yeah, I'm hoping Arthur gets off the opium and, like, goes back to his old form again. Because he fucking hates Solomon so much. Well, yeah, because Solomon got him in jail. Well, no, he, he ambushed him and killed all of the people in his party when yeah. he was out of food with them. Yeah, exactly, and then He's that that's what got him. Arthur in jail, where he was... Oh, okay. Because yeah. that, that was what happened, yeah, they... They shot the guys that were with him, framed him, and then threw him in jail. To be fair, they, he, he's turned on the Peaky Blinders like five times. It's, it's yeah. kind of mad. Although, that scene, the scene where Tommy first tries to, get, or first gets Artie Solomon back on his, well, at least in a business arrangement with him, where yeah. um, he's like faking that he has a grenade, like in the in the warehouse, and they're doing this negotiation, and the guy next to Artie is like panicking. And Artie just slaps him in the face. He's like, we're having an adult conversation. Go over there, you know, sit in the corner and suck on your thumb. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Artie Solomon's a great character. I just, I'm hoping Arthur Shelby doesn't stay a shambles. I'm hoping he, he comes back and he's actually back in form by the end of the season. Do you think either Arthur or Tommy are going to die at the end of the season? Ooh, that's a good question. It's they. I think this is this is the final season. So, I think Arthur's gonna die. I don't think Tommy is. I'm hoping 
that if Arthur dies, he goes out in a blaze of glory. Oh, he will. Like for sure. If if High he's on the one that dies with a machine gun, <laughs> that would be awesome. If that is the way he like, if he's the one that dies at the end of the season, I hope that's how he goes out. Blaze of glory. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, so we watched one episode of Peaky Blinders, but I'm sure by the time of the next have a podcast, we'll probably have f- finished the series, probably. Yeah. Uh, if they're actually all out by then. I don't know. <clears throat> That's true, yeah. Um, so, rest of the uh, week, I mean, I've had mm. this week off, so I've been playing a lot of games, mostly. I've... <laughs> I, took, I took a week off of work, and I literally just spent it doing as little as possible, because I was so stressed at the beginning of it. Just chilling out, went to see my parents, played with a dog. Um, and while I was there, I had my Switch with me. I've been playing Pokemon, uh, what is it called? Arctis? Unite? What? No, Arceus. I keep wanting to call it Pokemon Arcturus, but that's one of the characters from StarCraft. Um, anyway, so, it's interesting. Ancient feudal Japan. Yeah, that was something I I didn't know before I started playing it, is that it's set in, like the beginning days before they knew anything about Pokemon. Yeah. And you're like a time traveler that falls out of a rift with a smartphone. And Do you actually have a smartphone in here? Yes. Yeah. That's that's, that's a major plot point. A smartphone is the most useless thing in the universe in a world where you don't have satellites. That little plot point is skipped over. Okay. Because <laughs> it still works. It, it basically form Like, it's the reason you and only you have a mini-map. Fuck. That's the There's only just thing. like, a fucking... I don't know. Snorlax up on a mountain somewhere holding up a big metal stick. <laughs> giving you reception. <laughs> God. I mean, that, that basic, that's probably the, going to be the plot point. But yeah, so you have to deal with these clans, and you, because you're from the future, know all about Pokemon and have no problems, you know, taming a bunch of them. And everyone else mm. is like just barely gets one, yeah, yeah, only gets one and has barely figured out how Pokeball was Pokeballs work. Mm. Um, but I mean, I'm actually having a lot of fun with it. Um, it's a nice game to just like chill out on the couch and play for like. You know, half hour or so, and then put down and pick up and play and for a little bit. Because you just you run around, you chase a Pokemon, you throw a Pokeball at it, maybe you fight it, maybe you kill it. You know, gather some random shrubs, craft some Pokeballs, do it again. Sounds like every Pokemon game ever. Except you can craft Pokeballs now. Yeah, but uh... honestly, when when they introduced crafting mechanics, I was just like, ugh. I'm so every game has crafting now. I know. Ever since Minecraft, every game has to have crafting mechanics. Yeah. It just... It's getting kind of tedious. I want a game where I just, you know, just sell me shit. I think... I think there are, there are certain aspects. And don't get me wrong, I think crafting is one of the more common or guard ones that you can get away with. But, like, tech trees, for example. Mm. I will never get bored of tech trees because... Yeah. I think they're great. It's and a great way same... to allow... Sorry. Go on. I was going to say, it's a great way to allow you to um, feel more invested in the game, because you're mm. customizing your experience. Because uh, it's 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 changing the way that your character is. It's progressing their story in your head. Same with, like, current having currency in a in-game currency. Mm. Alright? Not out-of-game yeah. currency. 
not uh, need free to play in a game gives you a sense of owning money in a game and so that feels good and you can spend it on things that you want and that's good as well so shops and games you can't really that's never going to go away hmm. but yeah crafting is kind of I mean crafting for a start is nothing like you would make something in real life in real life you would never get two sticks and a piece of rock and make a sword out of it <laughs> uh, so for a start it's founded on lies <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I'm going too far because tech trees aren't a real thing either. But fair. I don't know. God, just hearing crafting these days, it gets some people so excited, and I know it's just it's just elongating a process that doesn't need to be there. Yeah. So there's something I was just thinking about what you were just saying. Um. And it, it's not every game. The problem I have is that they're trying to no. shoehorn it into games that don't need it. Like, um, it's fine, like, if an RPG has crafting, or if an RPG has tech tree. It'd be like if, you know, I played through the Halo campaign and they've added it. Well, actually, I take that back. They added in tech trees and crafting to Halo Infinite. Hmm. Was there crafting? No, no, they just added tech trees. But still. I don't know. But it is it's, a fun game. Um, to me, it's, it's like... If you can, if you, if you've put into a game a currency system, but you can only buy one thing with that currency, you should not have that currency. You should just have that thing. It's putting an extra step in, where you've literally just got to click a button to change it into something else immediately after. Yeah, one of the just playing devil's advocate here. Uh, one of the only reasons I could see the counter side to that. Um, that's like. So there's a fairly controversial thing in D&D. I say fairly. It's controversial to some people. Some of the newer campaigns, they recommend using uh, milestones instead of experience points. Because yeah, if I've all, that. If you just... Yeah, it, it's Jesse is, has done that for our D&D campaign too that I play in. I personally have not. And the reason I have not is because... It's like the, the currency... Like you've... After every... If you have experience points, even if all it does mechanically is have your characters level up at the right milestone. If getting that XP after each encounter, when they do something clever, when they defeat an enemy, it gives them a little bit more satisfaction, I find. It's, yeah. So just going like randomly, okay, you've hit chapter 12, you're now level 10. Um, that has a little bit less satisfaction than you've defeated this monster, have 1,000 XP. So my party actually leveled up the last session we were did, mm -hmm. and it was after like four sessions of doing, of being in the same kind of general vicinity. They were doing a very difficult um, task. They were they were fighting through essentially a military laboratory, and yeah. in the last episode there was a lot of very high emotions. <laughs> um. And people were brought to tears, and it was, oh, it was intense. So the, that, I felt like, was, because it was almost the end of that particular arc I planned, so I felt like that was a perfect time just to say, right, everyone came away from this with a whole new state of mind. So it kind of worked for that. But mm. granted, it's not always going to be that great, and sometimes you're just going to have to be like, you've done enough now, you get that level. So I do fully yeah. accept the point 
Yeah, and that's that's it's the uh, what's the phrase? Different strokes for different folks. Mm. And um, sorry, no, that that's it. Nino Kuni, mm. which I talked about previously. Um, I've told you there's like a manual in the game which talks about all of the lore of all the peoples of the planet and how where to find all the items and what all the creatures evolve into. So much information. Um, but also it's got kind of like a recipe book area in there where to make certain items they don't show you there's no indication just naturally in the game of what makes what. Mm-hmm. So you have to look through the recipe book and see, ah, okay, I want to make this. I'm going to need this, this, and this. I can find them in switch to that chapter, this location from this enemy. So it actually becomes like a real-life cookery thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of crafting that I think is brilliant because it's not just get stick and rock, make sword. It's find the place in the book, uh, see what's required, whether it's possible, how much money you'll need, whether you'll have to fight an enemy that you haven't found yet. And then once you've got all those things together, you can make something really special. That's a good point. And I think that's that's a good way to kind of make the distinction. Like, is the crafting mechanic a part, a core part of the gameplay? Something that you're, it's going to be satisfying and a good, experience in the game and it makes sense in the game's context or is it something that's just vestigially tacked on so you can say hey our game has crafting Mm. and the weapons that you create when crafting as opposed to picking up from enemies or stuff like that are Mm. definitively better they do that in the so in in the witcher 3 actually thinking what you were just talking about reminded me of this the Mm. really really good equipment in the witcher like the the best swords best whatever you have to go out find like the recipes hidden in old burned out ruins or wherever you have to bring that you have to first you have to find a master armor person and then you have to usually that armor doesn't have the right tools so you have to find the right tools or you have to complete a quest so that they'll be able to help you or something like that and then the materials are rare so after all of this you you find the recipes you find the armor or you get them prepped to go you find the materials and then you get something that is substantially better than the standard equipment that you get in the game mm. um i i find that that kind of thing very satisfying also i referring to the original nino kuni not number two because they don't have anything of that in there <laughs> um important distinction yeah. to make yeah, I feel like I need to because they are two very different games, and I don't really yeah, I got, the second one nearly as much. I got that impression from the uh, description you gave when we talked about it. Yes. Um, what were we talking about before we talked about crafting? We were talking about Pokemon uh, Ar- Arceus. Ar- right. Arceus, thank you. I don't know how you struggled this hard. Like I can remember, and I've not played it. <laughs> it's because once, once I remember the wrong name for something, I, I have mm. a really hard time getting back to the original name um which is a point of endless frustration and amusement for jesse during the DD campaigns because he'll like give us the name of a character um i think the person we're going after right now is his real name is like azimoth or azarak or something like that but i just keep calling him Asrak, and it's i know it's wrong obviously but I can't remember his real name. 
Yeah, well, to be fair, we were talking about Heroes of the Storm the other day, and you got Kira, right? Even though you call her Quinella. I call her Quinoa. Yeah, sorry. Different ways of saying the same word. Different language. Oh, right. Uh, dialect, sorry. Is that the right word? I have no idea. Dialect meaning accents. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you're talking about different ways to speak the same language, you're talking about dialects or accents. Yeah. Um... Cool. What else have we been playing? We got a bit of Splitgate. Yeah, we got back into Splitgate. Um, we needed an intense game. It's with, yeah. It's good still. I I think we were talking about this yesterday. So Splitgate is being compared very much to Halo Infinite because Splitgate was starting to get really popular around the time that Halo Infinite was about to come out. Hmm. Um. I find I enjoy in terms of like mechanically how well the flow of the gameplay goes and the moment to moment like you know punch shoot pick up weapon whatever throw grenade i definitely like halo infinite more but splitgate feels like it has a lot more con it should it's been out for a lot longer but it has a lot more content like there's a lot more maps there's a lot more variety of gameplay there's since we played it originally i feel like nothing has changed yeah but what I'm saying is, in the state it's in right now, compared to the state that Halo Infinite is in right now, Splitgate has more content. Right. Um, there's the portal mechanics, which... You hate. I don't, hates, I don't hate I them. Hate is too strong a word. I just feel like they don't serve much Despise of a purpose. you. <laughs> I feel like we were talking about crafting being vestigial in some games. I feel like the yeah. portal mechanics are just tacked on there. To say, hey, look, we're a little bit original, yeah. but you can. But then be... every shooting game does has that we're has... original thing. Yeah, well, except for Call of Duty. No, even Call of Duty, they had they introduced the wall running thing. I guess you're Which, right. Okay, granted, you could take that from Prince of Persia, but that wasn't at all like a shooting game. So there's there's an uh, a video that I haven't seen in a while, but uh, Donkey. A video game donkey released a video where he was talking about um, originality in video games, and for that he used examples of like gaming YouTube channels and gaming review channels, just going like, "This game is a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and like this if it was combined with that." Like, yeah. And w this conversation is reminding me of it. It's like, oh, Call of Duty is a little bit like. You know, Prince of Persia meets Medal of Honor meets Turok. I mean, that's what you do when you find a new game. You're describing it to someone. You use two games and find a medium between them. Mm. Um, yeah, I imagine every game probably has a game, has two other games that it could be said to be similar to. Yeah, especially these days. I mean, yeah. if you go back far enough, you know, how would you <laughs> Pong? It's a little There's bit tons like... of. Pong-esque rip-offs. Well, now there is, but I'm saying back in the day when it first came out. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. no, no. Pong, it's like ping-pong, but virtual. Hmm. Anyway. Like any simulator game, it's like the real thing, except worse. <laughs> I mean, depends on what you're simulating. Uh, I've played... Well, as you know, I loved Car Mechanic Simulator, and I do stand by that being... A fairly good game. Yeah, um, I mean, there's something satisfying about assembling something, putting it together. Yeah, but if I was doing it in real life, I'd at least be making money as well. <laughs> Fair. 
that's like uh, yeah, well, visceral to- cleanup detail. I'm not even clean my room after I finish. <laughs> that's that's the thing. I've I've never been able to wrap my head around the simulator games. Other than I, I guess it's 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 satisfying, but you can do a lot of those things. Like I'd never understand like why a trucker would play like Euro Truck Simulator. Yeah. Ironically, I, I agree with you on that. Even though I have played several simulating games. Yeah. And there are bad simulator games out there. Train station renovation sim was bad. Because, it was bad because, once you'd finished cleaning it up, which is the fun part, was cleaning up the train station, uh, you then had to repopulate it with chairs and things. But they didn't give a fuck where you placed them. So you could do funny So what you do is you'd clean the fucking place, Mm. and then you just big big pile of chairs and radiators and bathroom sinks all in the same place to to be fair something that um like I, I there might be something to say about them games like that being kind of meditative like in follow me on this one i find that like you know when in a work day like if i'm i've like it just you know you get like in a bit of a a foggy-headed state where you've just you've been you're doing too much. You need to like step away and like I don't know do something to clear your mind, right? Yeah. I find if I get up and I clean or I do a workout or if I cook something that works. And I'm thinking it might be the same thing. Like it's it's a way for people to just like let their mind wander because it's very you start you play the game and it's very simple mechanics you're you're cleaning up a, a train station or you're just driving a truck or you're driving a tractor or something like that it's it, it's it's like the people who like listen to like i don't know ocean sounds to go to sleep or something like that right it's a way to relax <sighs> thoughts maybe yes no i'm not saying well, it would, i personally don't think it would work for me but might be some people out there that do. See, I'm the worst. When I, I, I've always considered that gaming relaxes me. And mm. it does, but unfortunately that's not all it does. So, if I'm like stressed out and had a shit day or something, game is the best thing for me to just chill out. But, yeah. if I get into bed at the end of the day and I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted. Oh, i got to play a quick game before I go to bed. I'll be up for the next three hours. Yeah, wake up. only go. fall asleep. When I make myself <laughs> stop playing, I, yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same way. The things that like, if I'm falling asleep, I can't be playing a game because that'll that will wake me back up. So it's not that chill, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I I'm saying it more like in the you know I need to relax. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In in the de-stress sense. But even then, I think I think we are as nerds. That's just kind of us. I don't think Valerie, for example, gets chilled out by playing games. I think she gets more stressed. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking is maybe simulator games it, it does that for non-gamers. Cuz think about it, the mechanically they're extremely simple. No. Like push two buttons. Also. There's the cooking that cooking game where it's like super easy to smash the plate or drop it or something. And I can't imagine that being relaxing for anyone. Um, <laughs> I know the one fair, you're talking about too. Car mechanics can be frustrating before you know how it works. Mm. Um, A lot of things. Yeah, granted, when you understand it. Yeah. 
Anyway. Oh, any anything else, or we can move on to the next segment. Uh, no, I'm happy to move on to the next segment. Uh, not for the faint of hearted, I would say. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about another book uh, in segment three, just to give people a preview of what's coming up. Blue has finished reading 1984, a book that I, uh, George Orwell's 1984, I feel like I should clarify that for those that don't know. Yep. Um, I read the book a few years back, so I'm fairly familiar with it. We'll see how much of it I remember now, um, but mm. yeah, we'll be discussing that next. But be aware it is a novel about a fairly dark dystopian future so just and there are certain themes that are very unpleasant yeah uh particularly near the end yep so hope to see you there but if not I'm you've been week. warned <laughs> all right this is going to be the end of segment one of the tmcj podcast thank you all for listening and you will hear us again momentarily for segment three Welcome back to the TMCJ Podcast. We're on segment three, our wildcard segment, and this week it is another book review. So, Blue has just finished reading 1984, a book that I've read, dystopian future novel by George Orwell. Um, yeah, do you want to talk about it? Want to lead off? Yeah, we do love our dystopian futures, don't we? Red Rising, uh, the book that I'm trying to get you to read, mm. uh, which is Blind Faith. Uh, you like the... Brave New World. Brave New World. Uh, and yes, 1984, it's... Well, it's not future, is it? It's not futuristic. It was, it was a future... It's past. Well, technically... the time it was written. Yeah, it, it was a dystopian yeah. future at the time. So the book was written in 1948, and it was George Orwell picturing what the world would be like in 1984. And it was... Uh, the kind of... Uh, the kind of... What's the word I'm looking for? Construct, social construct, government, words, where uh, there is one overarching villain to the story called Big Brother, who is essentially the face of the government, and he is always watching you. Uh, yeah. I believe that's actually where the TV show Big Brother came from. Yeah, um, it, the, yeah there's a lot of... You'll find a lot of references to um, yeah. his work in like modern... It's also one called Room 101, which I don't know if that came from it, but it probably is. Yeah. There's, I mean, you also like hear people describe things that are particularly authoritarian as Orwellian. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's uh, not a nice place to live. There's these TV screens everywhere which are watching you, mm. uh, microphones to listen in for you, and there's a lot of things you're not allowed to do, like uh, writing or well actually is there that many things you're not allowed to do you're not allowed to fuck someone who you're not married to I think. yeah there there's there's I, I think the book was definitely a product of its time like they had just come off of you know fascism had just been a big thing in europe and now communism was becoming like a danger in europe and mm. so i think orwell saw all these particularly horrendous authoritarian things and was like trying to imagine you know what they could evolve into into the future if they really did take over the rest of society um mm. and the biggest 
uh, change, I would say, is that they completely rewrite history just for the current social, current governmental... I can't use words, holy fuck. <laughs> current governmental the policy. Current, thank you. They change it to just whatever they fucking need it to be, and everyone just believes them out of fear. And that, well, and that's what I think the main character, uh, what's his name, Winston, I think. Yeah. Um, he. I'm he amazed you remember that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, he works for the Ministry of Truth, which is yep. the government organization that's in charge of doing exactly what Blue just described. You know, editing history, going back, you know, and changing news stories. So, like, basically, there are three major powers in the world. I think it's Eurasia, East Asia, and Oceania. And Winston's in Oceania in what's called Airstrip One, which was formerly, you know, Great Britain. And um, depending on what nation they're at war with, he has to, like, change all the stuff around. So, like, if basically they suddenly decide they're not at war with one country and they're at war with the other one, it's not that they switch sides. It's that they've always been at war with this one and they were never at war with that one. They were always allies. Yeah. And that's yeah, that's one example of the things that they are constantly changing and rewriting. So Winston remembers that, you know, what basically what the he knows that what the party is saying is lies. In mm -hmm. fact, he helps them to write most of the lies as part of his job. And uh, he he just doesn't believe it in it, but he he kind of has to keep his opposition to the party very secret because anyone who is thought to be a thought criminal mm. uh, because you could be uh, seen as guilty for just thinking negative things in this world yeah it's um, go on. I was gonna say and uh, I'll try to avoid anything too controversial with this but you see elements of this stuff like happening now like not in the US well, so much crime. but in in the UK I know that um, they have what's called uh uh, non non crime hate incidents or something like that. Basically, it's if you say something controversial that might offend somebody, um, that can be filed with the police in the UK. Can it? Yeah. Look at look yeah. it up. Look it up after this. It's actually a very fascinating concept, and but it's also very horrifying to think that that can happen to people. Um, mm. But essentially what it does is they file away the fact that you said something potentially controversial for future use. So if you actually do commit a crime later, they can pull that back up and say, look, he was offensive before, so it might be a hate crime and not just a normal crime. Um, there's, well, there's hopefully they never find this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, there's also uh, stuff like uh, the whole rewriting history. That, that happens a lot with... Um, a lot of in the US that happens a lot with school like there are certain bits of history like war of you know 1812 that just isn't taught in the US really because mm. we lost that one against you guys to be fair <laughs> you lost quite a few wars over the years we have but we don't talk about those in school no do you not talk about Vietnam no it isn't taught I mean oh, it's kind of like really? glossed it, it might be glossed over in like the advanced placement or college history classes but in high school nope we talk about World War One, World War Two, and the Revolutionary War, pretty much. And Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we talk about Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, yeah, so a horrible place to live, and uh, also a lot of the women are encouraged to not sleep with men. Yeah, there's because a... Because all the children are test tube babies, I think, in that world. 
Uh, not that. I think you just, like, need to, like, be licensed be to have, like, kids or something like that. You're thinking of Bra in Brave New World, there's test tube babies. Yeah, I thought they did that in that as well, but I could be wrong. Um, but they, there is... I know there are, like, scout clubs for girls who... The, who don't who who actively say no to any kind of sexual interaction? It's the Junior Anti Sex League, I believe, is what they call God, it. You, how long ago did you read this? Did you read up some notes? No, I didn't. This I just, is amazing how much you're remembering. <laughs> it was it was a good book, and it it left an impression on me. Yeah. Oh God. Um, <laughs> I like because it was one of those. The reason that George Orwell, like, I think. You know, so many things from the book have kind of been grafted onto the modern zeitgeist is because he predicted a lot of things that have happened in authoritarian regimes around the world and even non-authoritarian regimes that are kind of messed up. Yeah, well, there are ex public executions mm -hmm. of thought criminals and uh, I guess just general enemies of the state. Yeah, and I think prisoners of war too, if I remember right. Yeah. I was trying to think of a way of saying that. Um, so, yeah, and also they take a very... <coughs> people will remember from the Nazi regime where they focused on getting people's children to rat them out. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a very much a culture of people's kids selling them out to the local authorities. Yeah, same thing um, happened in the uh, in the Soviet Union... So in, in yeah, and then the Nazi regime regime it was famously with the Hitler Youth, um, but I can't remember his name. Um, but there was this story that was, is entirely fabricated, but it was this story about how this kid's family was hoarding grain, and he he well he went to tell the authorities about it, and his family found out, and they they killed the kid, and famously like they they went in and they they found all the grain and they fed the village and they killed off the kid's family and they made him a hero for ratting out his family and it was all fabricated the kid never existed but mm. it's the same concept they they told that story to say it was a it was a morally good thing to you your first duty is to the state and not to your family so it's a yeah. theme in a lot of authoritarian like regimes in real life and again another thing that you know, he got fairly right uh winston has a wife that he is very estranged to because mm -hmm. she is uh wants to be doing her duty as a woman to be married i think but she's so committed to the party that she doesn't actually have much commitment to him as it's her husband it's one thing that like gets brought up multiple times in the novel and it's clearly had some kind of a traumatic effect on him because she, like, when they have sex, it, she's saying, we need to do our duty to the party. But she's mm. just very, like, not into it, kind of emotionless during it, and, like, clearly doesn't enjoy it. And that, that to him, is, like, he doesn't even want to... I mean, it just... Yeah, yeah no one no. want to really do it. If no, was... I, I can't imagine that being a pleasant experience for either person involved. No. Um... But yes, whenever they have, whenever he has to deal with any sensitive material at work that needs to be forgotten, you put it in the memory hole, mm. which I'm imagining because he says they say throughout that it's just like a fiery pit below that instantly burns the memory. Mm. But based on what happens with a certain photo, I'm guessing it actually goes to like another department. Yeah, um, they might archive it or something like that. Yeah, 
which would also help to explain how they catch so many people. Because, I mean, he put down several messages through that thing that were only meant for him. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, they, he went, so there's the proles. Do you want to explain the proles? Yeah, so this is an interesting thing that they do. So basically, there are two classes in society. There's the party members. Three? Are there three? Yeah. Okay. I only so, remember. Oh, I, oh, you're right. There's the inner party, the outer party, and the proles. Yeah. So the party members are divided into inner and outer party. And then there's the proles. And the proles are like the vast majority of the population. Who are 90%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're kept like, you know, basically stupid and content, essentially. They're, they're given enough to survive. You know, they're given like, you know, booze, food, and shelter, basically. And they're not given any education. They're basically just there to be... I mean, they kind of had the best life, really. I mean, apart from the higher class. They had better lives than the middle class, I think. I, I agree with that. Like, it, when I was reading through the book, I was like, I would... You really want to be one of the inner party people or one of the proles? Because the outer yeah. party people are the people like Winston who, you know, they have to force themselves... Follow the rules. Yeah, follow yeah. all the rules, force themselves to believe all the propaganda and really, really commit to it. Otherwise, somebody's going to rat you out and you're dead. Um, but the inner party are like the upper elites, like, you know, think the, the people who were part of like Stalin's inner circle in the Soviet yeah. Union, they have all the they're power. They're the only ones that get, they're the only ones that get wine, they get way more like chocolate yeah. allowance and they can turn off the telly screens as well. Yeah. That's, that's, that's actually a, a very seminal point in the book near the end where, um, Winston and the the girl that he's kind of formed a little bit of a romantic tryst with, they're, they're meeting somebody who they think is a radical that's part of the inner party. And up until this point, the telescreens are a constant source of fear. They're in every room, but through the telescreens, people, the inner party can see you, they can hear you, and so he, like, tries, he, he loves his apartment because there's, like, a little corner where he can go in where the telescreen can't see him. And, um, but you can't turn him off. But that he goes to meet this inner party guy, and he goes up and turns off the telescreen when they go to talk. And I think, I can't remember exactly how it's described in the book, but Winston is just, like, blown away by this. Mm. Yeah, him and the girl. Should mm. um, talk about the girl? Mm. So she, uh, she's one of those people who's part of the, one of those, like, anti-sex leagues, they're called. Um, young girl, I think it, in the book, like, Winston's supposed to be in his 30s, and she's, like, in her, like, late teens, early 20s, I think. Yeah, I, I want to say early that. 20s. Um, and so, he ends up, like, getting in contact with her through, like, just, like, she leaves him a note, like, during so, lunch no, or something. No, no, no. So, okay. he initially looks at her, and he thinks... He hates her because she's very attractive. She doesn't want anyone touching her because of the anti-sex league thing. And she looks like a thought police. So someone that would track people like him down and have them tortured and sent away. Yeah. Uh, one day he's going into work and she has like a sling on, I think. And he knocks into her and she falls over. And while he's helping her up, she slips a slip of paper into his hand. That's what it was. And the piece of paper says, I love you. 
think. Yeah, yeah, something along those lines. And he, because of exactly what Blue just said, he thinks this is like a honeypot. This is a trap. Like this is this is him, like somebody in the party trying to catch him, and he's gonna be what they call vaporized, um, which is when somebody not only do they just suddenly they're they're obviously taken away somewhere, they're probably killed, but everyone else is required to pretend they don't even exist. So he's afraid that's gonna happen to him if he you know goes with this girl. But eventually the temptation is too much, and he sort of gets in contact with her and finds out that she's the opposite of what he thought. She actually, you know, even though she's a member of the anti-sex thing, she actually, you know... Big ol' slut. Yep. Goes around sleeping with people, and she calls it, like, her act of rebellion or subversion or something like that. Yeah, which he loves. Yeah. Because he likes breaking the rules, and... They brought... It came... Okay, so... They met outside... They meet up outside of a... In, like, a parade ground where lots is going on. Mm. And they very gradually creep up to one another. And while looking in different directions, they kind of have a brief conversation. And she says, uh, take this train to this platform, go down this road, take this left, this right, over a tree, and into a clearing. Mm. On this date. Yeah. So that they can meet in a place where there aren't cameras and microphones. Which... I, I can understand an entire city being pretty well fucking bugged, but to bug the countryside, which they seem to have done, mm. they must have wires literally, like, spanning the continent. <laughs> yeah, part of me wonders if they um, didn't have somebody follow them or something like that more clandestinely, or or if they even needed to follow them. Because eventually, I think... They they end up moving their romance into the city, but into the the parole districts, where they think that they're safe. Yeah. So so just keep going with the story then. Yeah yeah keep going keep going. Okay. So they get to this clearing and they have uh, that bang gratuitous amounts of sex, and he's like, no, she says, yeah, I've slept with many people. Hmm. Never specifies how many. No. But it's it's from from what it sounds like. I think they used the word 100 at one point, which cannot be true. I think maybe they were just speculating. Mm -hmm. Um, But Winston says, the more men you fucked, the more I will love you. Yeah, Winston... And that really unsettled me. Winston, you're you're being a bit of a cuck here, but the the thing is, I, I I can get what they were going with here. Yeah, I know what he was trying to say as a message, but that's not a reason to love someone for any reason. It isn't, but I, I want to bring this up, because we talked about Brave New World, who knows how many podcasts ago, and George Orwell and um, Albus Huxley, the guy that wrote Brave New World, actually knew each other, and they they famously went in two different directions in this regard with their dystopian futures. Because mm. George Orwell pictured that like in a dystopian world, they would try to destroy families by making sex more of a taboo right and by essentially making it like so it's it's shameful to make love have sex do whatever yeah whereas Albus Huxley thought it was the opposite they thought they would make people bang like crazy ever since they were kids and that would just like cheapen sex to the point where no family structures would even exist um which I mean to be fair but but, oh I'm getting to a point okay I'm getting to a point um remember that though because I want to hear what you're gonna say 
so I think in the context of the society that George Orwell constructed, he like Winston is is attract, attracted to the fact that this woman has subverted the state. She's like said no to all of this propaganda, and part of saying no to that is to bang as many people as possible. I personally don't find that attractive. Obviously, you don't. Um, but in the context of the society, I can see kind of why Winston would. Yes, I just think it's never mix politics and love. Um, yeah, but I was gonna say I think in modern day, I think it obviously it's uh, social pressure dictates these days that it's far more taboo to go around sleeping with multiple people. Um, I think it depends on where you live. Okay, fair enough. Well, I was going to say, but on the other hand, you have, like, uh, the the marketing world, the advertise, advertisements everywhere, which use sex to sell, which are going in the opposite direction. Yeah. So I think we kind of have two extremes which have mixed into a kind of middle ground, which is where we are. Yeah, you end up with uh, marketing telling people that they'll be happy if they just go out there and like bang the most attractive person they can find exactly (laughs) and in reality the the human psyche isn't built that way like um just a little 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 side factoid a little uh piece of um i don't know it's a factoid it's just making personal commentaries on (laughs) no 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 i'm i'm actually i was about to quote something that's actually um so from uh psychological studies that i i read back in college what they, they found was that both men and women, the more different sexual partners they've had, like, it's different for every person, but in broad averages, like, once you pass a certain threshold, it can actually cause some, like, mental health issues. So, it, it's different for men and women, um, and it's different quantities for every person, but in broad averages, once you pass a certain number... Um, it can start to have, and I'm not going to say the exact number because I don't remember and I don't want to misquote the, the study because it was years ago that I read it. Um, but yeah, just a little, it, just another example of how exactly what we're talking about can be psychological da- psychologically damaging. Anyway, go on. Uh, but yes, yeah, so they have their little tete-a-tete and then they part ways through different train stations from the way they get there. They got there. Yeah. Uh, at one point... Oh, no, okay, before this happened, before he met the girl, mm. he was walking down a prol street. He was mm. having a weird day, and he's like, I'm going to take a walk, and I'm going to go through the prol sector. Yeah, and just he, go and do my thing. Yep, and he buy, he goes back to a shop where he had previously bought a diary, which is an illegal item. Mm. And he goes back into that shop, and he's talking to the owner about some of the random things he has in it. It's an antique shop. Yeah. And basically everything in there, him just being there is basically illegal. Yeah. Um, not, well, they, they make a point that it's not illegal, but it's dangerous because somebody might think he's getting dangerous thoughts if he goes there. Yeah. And he buys a pink piece of coral inside of a like a little glass dome, mm-hmm. which sounds really cool. Yeah, uh, and the shopkeeper's like, "Oh, take a look upstairs. We might have more items up there that you'd like." 
shopkeeper's wife had died at some point and he was basically trying to sell on what he had. Yeah. Uh, so he goes up to Winston goes up to this room with the shopkeeper and more of the same stuff, lots of old paintings, uh, old furniture, a very large lady who lived next door. He could hear out the window singing and putting up clothes on a washing line, mm. um, which is very different to the women of the party because they're all meant to be very skinny and and stoic and yeah yeah um and he ends up uh, and and as he's leaving that shop he sees the girl walking down the street towards him and he's like oh crap she saw me leaving the shop and he yeah. very nearly he goes inside earlier he very nearly chases after her and bricks her to death yeah because he's like oh she's gonna her. yeah she's gonna have me killed she's gonna report yeah. on me you know all this yeah and so uh, when they're in the clearing, he's like, actually, I was going to kill you a few days ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing, so this is a scene that doesn't have to do with it, but didn't, when he was on that prol street, didn't he talk to some, like, old dude in a pub or something yeah, like that? Yeah, he went to a pub, and there was an old dude at the bar who was like, why can't you give me a pint? Because they only do it in... Leaders and half-leaders. Leaders, leaders yeah, and half-leaders, half yeah. Uh... And yeah, he talks to him about the old days and the um, oranges, oranges and lemons sing, ring the bells of St. Clement's. Mm. Uh, a penny... I can't remember the rhyme. Yeah, There's a rhyme that they use throughout the book. Yeah. And Winston is getting progressively more angry with the guy because he wants him to... Like, he's like, no, tell me, like, what were capitalists like? You know, did they mm. all wear top hats? You know, is this all true? Mm. And... You know what? What did what did these people do? And the guy doesn't have any specific facts. He really doesn't know that much. And and yeah. he, he's, he's complaining. Like, I have like, wore a top hat, but I went to a funeral once. Yeah, and he's just rambling and stuff like yeah. that. Because um, it's just it's some random old dude who's in a pub. Yeah. And Winston is goes away from that a bit dejected. Um, but yeah. Um, but no, he ends up hiring out the apartment, and so their future meetings... I think they met in a church belfry at one point before they started going to the mm. his place. But then they started meeting up in the uh, attic room of that odd shop. Yeah, that that pawn shop or place that he went into, the, yeah, there's like a bedroom up there or something like that. And Winston like rents a room from the guy, and that's when they have their romantic trysts from there on. Mm. Um, ah, and a rat. There's a rat in... The bedroom. Mm, and Winston hates the rat for some reason. She, the, the lady fucking hurls something at the rat and then says she's going to cement it up. And Winston has a very bad reaction to rats. Um, yeah. I don't think they ever particularly explained why. They, they do... I think they explain... They explain about his past... Yeah, with the whole, like, there, there's this one thing that's kind of a fixation in Winston's mind. And before we move on to that, one thing I want to say that I agree with that old guy on is a liter of beer is too much. Like, yeah. he's his his complaint is that, like, he wants a pint because a half liter isn't enough. A liter of beer is too much. Um, having been to mainland Europe and they do sell beer in liters at bars there, it's too much. Not in England, they don't. <laughs> Yeah, I know. You guys do pints, and your pints are bigger you than big ours. Pints, yeah. <laughs> Our, your your pints are actually twenty five percent bigger than the U.S. pints. Ours are mm. sixteen ounces. Yours are twenty. Anyway, um, but yeah. So 
the the thing from Winston's past, he like um, at some point because like this like sex with his wife is so unpleasant because she's just complete completely like not into it because she's been propagandized by the party that like it's bad she shouldn't be doing it but she has to do it for the party to make sure they have a child because the party needs more members in the future. Um, so he he goes to the parole district and um, hires a prostitute. And, like, there are all the unpleasant images from that are, like, fixed in his mind. Like, the fact that she had this really shitty makeup on. You know, she was old. Yeah, it was... Yeah. I think there was it was, like, it was, like, a dirty room and stuff like that. I'm trying to remember where the rats came into it. I think... I don't remember if there were rats around when the prostitute was there, or if the rats are something from when he was a kid. Because I think they, they mentioned when he was a kid, like, he, he, like, stole from his brother or from his family or something like that. So, when he was a kid, he had a mother and a sister, mm -hmm. a younger sister. Mm -hmm. And he was a very greedy child. And As a lot of oh. children are. One particular, because they didn't have enough food to feed their family. Yeah. Um, and one day they got their ration of chocolate, and Winston stole the whole piece of chocolate, like literally snatched it out of his dying sister's hands, mm. ran off with it. Uh, and when he came back home again, they had both disappeared, uh, either taken by the government or just left. He yeah. has no idea. Yeah. That's something else to, to mention. One of the other things he does with the whole Ministry of Truth, um, they'll, like, one day there'll be messages like, oh, the uh, the rations are, you know, I don't know, a, a bushel of hay or something like that. Mm, and no then, razor blades. Yeah, or, or yeah, it's, like it, it's, it's three razor blades. And then the next week or the next day they'll be like, and now the rations have been increased to two razor blades, even though it was three yesterday. And everyone's just expected to agree with that and go like, oh, yes, it's gone up. Yeah. Um, like, no matter how it changes, it's always an increase. It's always getting better. Um, yeah. And uh, so what happens then? So they, they have their romantic tryst in, the, uh, in the, the bedroom up there. And I think... Like, Winston tries to go over some of the political ideas that he has with her and some of the thoughts he has in that regard. And she's just not interested. Like, she really just wants to have sex and that's it. Um, but as their relationship progresses and they get more and more involved, um, they get involved with... Um, they, they somehow find out about this subversive group, right? The Brotherhood. The Brotherhood. That's what they're called. Of steel, no, um, <laughs> no. Uh, so he, Winston, uh, knew a guy, or when near the beginning of the book, he mm. was in a like a theatre or whatever, mm. and he wasn't cheering when everyone else was. And another guy looked round at him and gave him a look, mm. like I'm in the same boat as you, kind of look. And way later in the book, where we are now, uh, that same person approaches Winston and is like I hear your, your you do really good uh, newspeak in your columns which mm. I don't explain newspeak but yeah do you want me to 
go over that quick? Go for it. Yeah. All right. New speak is the idea is that the more meaning they can pull out of language, the more control they have. So essentially, new speak, they're, they're trying to eliminate as many words as possible. So instead of saying like bad, there's ungood. And mm. instead of saying like great, there's, you know, more good. More good. Exactly. And so like that so it, basically the idea is if you shrink the language down and have fewer and fewer words that are being used you can like it's harder for people to express complex ideas and therefore their ideas are easier to control um and so it's something that's always being you know created by the party and enhanced by the party and pro mm -hmm. you know progressed and i think mm -hmm. one of his friends is talking about like one of his friends is in that department and he's talking about I'm oh, not one of his friends he fucking hates the guy co-workers I should say one of his co-workers yeah. is in that and he's, he's going over like how he's excited that like next year there'll only be like a thousand words or something like that and he's very intelligent but and very the, the, the co-worker is very intelligent and very loyal to the party but because he's so intelligent Winston is certain that at some point he will end up being caught by the thought police for a random reason. Yeah, and then just vaporized because he's too smart. Yeah. Um, so, this other random guy that Winston met at the beginning uh, tells him to drop by his house to look at a new version of Newspeak that's just come out. Mm. I think it's version 6 or something. Yeah. And so Winston decides to go there with his girlfriend? Yeah, so the person in question is actually one of the inner party members. Yeah. I think his name is Brian or something like that. Bradshaw? Yeah, it, it starts with a B. Whatever his name is, it starts with a B. So they yeah. go there, and this is the scene I was talking about earlier where they go inside, and before they talk, the guy turns off the telescreen. Well, we need to give him a name because we're going to be talking about this guy a lot, so we're uh going to call him Brian. All right, we'll go with Brian. So Brian... Sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry. They they go in, they show up there, you know, holding hands together and they're they're committed to be subversive or whatever. And so mm. Brian goes up and he turns off the TV and he gives them a speech about how the brotherhood is like within the party and there's a chance that they might do something like to to change things and that, you know, you need to forswear this and here read this book and they give this mm. book that's written by the supposed subversive that founded the brotherhood. He doesn't give him the book yet. Oh, he so, tells him how to get it. That's right. But also he makes him sway. He's like, okay, are you willing to lie to people? Are you willing to sleep with people? Are you willing to kill people? Are you willing to throw acid in the face of a child? Yeah, make them really swear that they are committed to yeah. being subversive. Uh, and they agree to all of it. Um... <clears throat> And even that, you find out that even the inner party people can only turn off the telescreens for up to thirty minutes. Mm. So even they are under the knife, as it were, from each other. Yeah, exactly. Unless there's some higher power. Um, yeah, do you want to take from there? Yeah, so they, I think the the place that they're supposed to get the book is a a big rally that's being held to show that they've just defeated you know these people from this nation, and they're parading the prisoners in front of them. And some yeah. guy, like, bumps up against him in the crowd and drops off a briefcase, and that's where he gets the book. Yeah. Interestingly, in that rally, so they've got all these posts up saying, you know, like, fuck Eurasia, or whatever. Yeah. And the the speaker comes up and he's like, yeah, so, the war we've just fought with East Eurasia, and everyone's like, 
oh shit, rips down the posters like this isn't right. And that's yeah, that's what I was talking about earlier. Is like the moment they change it, they've always been at war with East Asia. Yeah, it was never Eurasia before. And it's the propaganda of the evil people who have been who put those posters there uh, as a trick against against the the good people of the government. Yeah, yeah. And so, anyway, so they get the book, and they go back, and they, they read it in secret in their little hovel in the parole district, the little room that they're renting upstairs, and, um, yeah, they, uh, but I think, they, they, so this goes on for a while, and I, I think this is when the big, the big twist happens. So, the, the big twist is that... So, there's um, a very long part where they're reading the book. Yeah. It's like an hour. Um, yeah, it's it's quite quite a bit of time is spent in the book with them going through it and you know it getting. It doesn't really tell me anything new either. I didn't. No, it's just it's subversive ideas, and they're just excited about the fact that they're getting to read about these things that they're not supposed mm. to read. Well, Winston is. She doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, she just wants to fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, whatever. Respect if she's going to be a slut. Commit to it. Yep, folks and strokes. <laughs> Winston's getting turned on by the politics, and she's just getting turned on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. And so the big, the big twist that happens after that is they they get rushed in the room. Like a bunch of you know thought police people come in. They yeah. and it turns out there's a telescreen fitted behind one of the paintings. That's right. Yeah, they they show and the guy who basically the guy who owns the shop. He's there to catch subversives. Like, I see. I don't think he is. No, he's he's one of the. Um, he actually turns out to be one of the party members. Um, I. We can we can we can double check on that. But I, if okay. I remember, you've read it more recently than me, so I'm inclined that maybe I misinterpreted that. So what I understood was that the when they went to see Brian, Brian has always been in the pocket of the government. Mm-hmm. And they told him where they were hanging out. Yeah. And then he put in a telescreen there and then caught them live. Okay, so my my read of it was that the whole reason, like, so what I got out of it was that the guy that's there, he's either a parole working for the party or he's like an agent. Basically, he's there to catch people. Like, his shop is there to provide temptation. And that telescreen had always been there. Um hmm. That was my read of it, but we can we can check after this. But it does it doesn't matter. The result is the same. They get rushed. There's a telescreen in the room, and they get taken off to um, a jail, where they're going to be the Ministry of Love. The Ministry of Love, which is the it, it's a torture chamber, basically. It's yeah. It's it's meant to be the the police headquarters. Yeah. For the government. Yeah. It, it's it's the Kremlin, if you can you know think back to a Soviet comparison. Hmm. Um, the Lubyanka. So they um, they go in there, and Winston is put in a jail cell separate from her. Uh, and yeah, he never sees her. her no, he sees her briefly. They, yeah, they say that he never sees her again, but he does. Yeah, he's, maybe in that state of mind, he never sees her again. Yeah, exactly. He never sees her until he's been corrected. Yes. Um. So he's in the jail cell, and actually his, like, next-door neighbor is in there, because apparently his daughter ratted him out to the secret mm. police. And his his next-door like, neighbor... Sorry? Go no, you're gonna say it. Yeah, his, his next-door neighbor is, like, a super devoted member of the party. He's like, oh, 
I'm glad that my daughter ratted me out. I was, I must have had subversive thoughts somewhere in my mind. It's so good of her to have done this. Like, I'm so, I'm so proud of her. And it's just... He was sleeping, and he said in his sleep, down with Big Brother. Yeah, or at least the daughter. His daughter was listening at the keyhole with an ear trumpet. uh, And then just turned him in in the morning. Yeah. I think they, they mentioned that the youth organization is actually called the Spies in the book, if I remember right. Or it's it's some it's something like that. But mm. yeah, and they give them give them these little tools, the the ear trumpet so they can hear, you know, what their parents are saying behind closed doors and whatnot. Yeah. Um but yeah, so then what happens is Winston gets taken into a room, room one oh one. No, he doesn't get taken in there for a very long time. Oh, okay. At first, he's there with um, Brian. Brian. And Brian is... I think Winston says something along the lines of... Uh, when Brian comes into the room, he's like, Oh no, Brian, they got you too? And he says, mm. They got me a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. And then the whole conversation about how many fingers am I holding up? Yeah. Brian makes a, a good point here. Um, well, not a good point, but... I think a point that's a very fundamental piece of Orwell's philosophy in this book. He's like, he's like, how many fingers am I holding up? And, um, you know, he's holding up four. And mm. Winston, but he's asking Winston to believe that he's holding up five. Yeah. And the, uh, any listeners that are squeamish this, from this point on should probably not listen. That's a good point. Yeah, it does get a little bit tortury after here. Yeah, all the way up until the end from here. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so he's like, and every time like Winston, you know, answers incorrect, not answers incorrectly, he's, um, but every time Brian doesn't believe that he believes he gets tortured with some kind of a shock pain device thing. Needle injections. Yeah. 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 And, um, gets more and more brutal. I think Brian says something along the lines of, it's like, you know, I don't need you to say that there's five. I need you to believe it. You have to really believe it. Mm. Or something along those lines. Um, and that, I think, is, is part of Orwell's philosophy of how this dystopian society, you know, functions. They, they don't need people to say what the pro- party propaganda is and believe it on a surface level. They need to really, down to their core, believe that that's the truth. Yeah. And anyway, so uh, Winston doesn't believe enough. He won't renounce his, uh, you know, his his lady love there, and uh, gets taken to room one hundred one, where they put they essentially room one hundred one is always where you're subjected to your absolute worst dread and fear and whatnot. Yeah, I think Brian it says that it's not always lethal, but it is the greatest fear of any individual. Mm. And in Winston's case, that's rats. I think they put his head in a box full of rats. So, yeah, they have, like, a contraption where it's a mask, where it's, so it's enclosed around his face, and that has a door which leads into a cage with two very large and very hungry rats. Yeah, which, again, it's a, it's a torture customized to the person. Apparently you used to do it in China. I mean... It's punishment. You would be shocked. Well, maybe you wouldn't be, but there's there's quite a few horrendous tortures that have done been done throughout history. Do you know what the uh, yeah. bloody eagle is? I've heard of it. Yeah, it's maybe it off the podcast. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to say it on the podcast, but it's gruesome. For those uh, that are very squeamish, yeah. don't look it up. But the, um, uh, the 
I want to say the Gauls did it, or it might have been the Romans. Anyway, go yeah. on. Uh, so yes, and he realizes a moment before the rat's cage is going to be. By the way, in this world, rats are big and forward enough that they will literally steal people's children from their homes and eat them. Um, yeah. uh, specifically, rats have become to come to know people that come to know when people are weak or um, like out of sorts. So children, because obviously they're weak, but also sick people, mm. they're known to target sick and eat sick people. So Winston at this point is barely human with how he's been malnourished and tortured, beaten and, up, and yeah. yeah. Uh, and a second before the door opens, uh, Winston realizes the one person that can get him out of here, and that is by denouncing his girl. Yeah. And the thing is, like, and it, that's so that that gets him out of the torture. And I think right as they're being led out of the room, they see each other or something like that. Or at some point in after that scene, they do see each other and they make eye contact and they realize that they have both denounced each other. Because she had to do so, the exact same thing to get out. So Winston goes and is at a cafe eating lunch and playing chess. Mm. Um, and Big Brother is talking on a telescreen about something about the war. Yeah. Uh, and he goes out to a park and he sees her in the park and then follows her. Mm. She doesn't really want him to catch up to him, but he does catch up to him. And then... They reveal to each other they both renounced each other. Mm. Um, and basically, they're just fucking broken people. And yeah. it's really sad. It is very sad. And one thing that I, I think is you, you, you skipped over, but it is very important is when he sees Big Brother talking in that telescreen. Like he actually he weeps for joy. Like the the he was he's so broken that at that point, like essentially, Brian accomplished what he was going for. Down to his core now, he's a true believer in the party. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's quite a grim ending. Yeah, very dystopian. Yeah, um, the the party wins. Um, not a very know. pleasant book. Um, and becoming more and more famous these days because people are seeing elements of it uh, in modern society. You know, cameras being everywhere people changing facts based on what the current political leanings are. Um, yeah. Was it the um, have control over the present and you control the past? Yep. Have control of the past and you control the future or something? The the exact phrasing is he who, I, I want to say it's he who controls the past controls the present. Uh, no, no. He who controls the present controls the past. He who controls the past controls the future. Yeah. Um, no, a lot of significant lines like that. Uh, or maybe it's past controls the present, present controls the future. But the, the sentiment's the same. If you're able to rewrite facts and history at, wi at will, you basically control the direction everything is going in. Yeah. Um, no, I, I quite like my dystopian books to have just a little bit of hope left at the end. Don't get me wrong, almost all these dystopian books end... Badly. I mean, in Brave New World, they kind of end positively because they all survive and get to live on. Yeah, Brave New World, own. it ends positively on the individual level. 
because yeah. all of the the main characters they don't die they just get sent off to an island to basically be their own people away from society but the dystopian society keeps going mm. and i think that's that's a theme of both of these novels brave new world yeah, and pretty much every dystopian novel i've read the the society unfortunately does not crumble yeah <laughs> the um, people who are trying to stand up against it do which yeah sucks um but no very good book and a lot of political messages in there if you look hard enough hmm. yeah definitely worth a read um some of the language is a bit antiquated and when i first started reading it um it took me a while to get into it because the first couple chapters or at least the first chapter is a bit dry and block texty but once mm. you get past that uh it does pick up fairly fairly quickly that's really, yeah. especially if it's it that's you know your cup of tea anyway. okay well how many uh party gins out of 10 <laughs> oh god yeah what would they call it like liberty gin or something like that liberty gin that was it yeah um i don't know uh eight I was, again, same answer. I was going to say eight. Um, Not a particularly happy novel. Um, no. But a I lot mean, of... You, I know you don't like happy novels. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of a tragedy. <laughs> uh, no, I would have liked just not a victory, but a, a little bit of hope. hope. Glimmer yeah. of hope. Just a little little speck. Yeah, yeah and that, that definitely did not happen. It was a very, very dark ending. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway. Well, that is going to be the end of episode 82 of the TMCJ podcast. Thank you all for listening, and you will hear us again in two weeks for episode 83.